Good evening, church. My name is Jeff Brookshire, and I'm one of the teaching elders here at Crossroads. I'm not the lead pastor, uh, but I want to welcome all of you who are visitors with us tonight. How many of you were tempted when you came in to say, good morning? How many of you said it? Killian and I decided that each person who said it had to give a dollar to the Pathways Fund. Uh, but evidently not too many of you did that, so we'll be looking for you later there, Tom. Tonight we are um, here to remember a Friday that happened 2,000 years ago. A Friday that for centuries we have called good. But we only call it good with 2020 hindsight. Because those who lived on that day, in that day, for many of them, it was not a good Friday. Now, of course, the enemies of Jesus, when they laid their head on the pillow that night, they said, wow, this was a good Friday. Jesus is dead. But for the followers of Jesus, for those who'd been with him from the beginning, it was anything but good. It was a horrific Friday. For the family of Jesus, especially the mother of Jesus, Mary, it was a heart-wrenching Friday. It was anything but good. I encourage you, if you would, tonight, when you go home, pull out a Bible just for 20 minutes. Just take 20 minutes tonight or tomorrow and turn to the books of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, and turn to the end of those books and read about that last day. But don't just read about it. What I encourage you to do is to imagine in your mind's eye that you are there, that you are hearing the words that Jesus is speaking and the words that were spoken to Jesus, that you are there seeing what was being done to Jesus and what Jesus did. Because if you do that, if you really take it to heart, you will agree that it was a heart-wrenching horrific Friday. That's why many people think that Jesus was crazy. Because Jesus knew what kind of Friday it was going to be. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And he had every opportunity to avoid it, to run from it, to hide from it, to escape from it. But instead, he set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem to face this horrific heart-wrenching Friday. Jesus knew. Jesus knew where he was going to die. He knew who was going to be involved in that day. He knew what was going to happen to him, and he knew how he was going to die long before that Friday ever happened. In fact, look with me, if you would, in your bulletins to what Matthew writes about Jesus about an event that happened long before that Friday. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Right there, you could see that Jesus knew that he was going to die in Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you a question. If somebody prophesied over you and said that you were going to die in um, commerce, where's the last place in the world you'd want to go? 
right? Exactly. You wouldn't want to go to arcade. No, 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 I mean commerce. <laughs> you wouldn't want to go, right? You'd find another Walmart. You'd find another Home Depot. You'd find another Longhorn or Outback. You'd find another mall to go to. You would make sure that you drove out of your way, no matter how long it took, to go around commerce. You wouldn't want to go there. And yet Jesus sets his face resolutely and even leads the way with his disciples as he's going to Jerusalem to die. Mark tells us that his disciples were astonished and afraid. They were astonished that Jesus would want to go to the place that he was going to die, and they were afraid for what was going to happen to him, but more importantly, they were afraid for what was going to happen to them. Listen to what Mark writes in the incident that happened long before that Friday. It says the disciples were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, now the Son of Man is a, a nickname that he used for himself, a phrase that he used for himself. So the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, did you hear that? Jesus not only knew where he was going to die, but he knew who was going to be involved. If you read, like I ask you to, to go and to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and read those last days, you will see that Jesus knew exactly which one of his followers was going to betray him to his enemies. He knew that Judas Iscariot was going to betray Jesus for 30 stinking pieces of silver. He knew it beforehand. He knew beforehand who was going to deny him. He knew that one of his most staunch followers, Simon Peter, was going to deny that he even knew Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. He knew that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the religious establishment, would send a detachment of soldiers with clubs and, and torches, and they would come into the Garden of Gethsemane and arrest him and take him back to a trial, a mockery of a trial, a trial where they listened to liars. And the verdict was already decided. He knew that he would be declared guilty at that trial. He knew that they would say that he should be executed. But he also knew that the Jews couldn't execute him because it was against Roman law for them to execute. Only Romans could execute. So they took Jesus to Pontius Pilate and there handed him over to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Romans. Listen, Jesus not only knew who was going to be a part of his death, he knew what was going to happen. Listen to what is written about that. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles 
They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Jesus knew who, where he was going to die. He knew who was going to be involved, and he knew what was going to happen to him. He knew that the Roman soldiers, when they got a hold of him, that they would mock him. He knew that they would take a purple robe and wrap it around his shoulders like a king. They would put a stick in his hand like a scepter, and then they would fashion a a crown out of long thorns and smash it on his head. And then bow down to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. He knew they would mock him. He knew they would blindfold him and smack him upside the head and say, prophesy to us, who hit you? He knew he would be mocked. He knew he would be spit upon. He knew he would be flogged. Now, don't skip over that. It says that Jesus knew that he would be flogged. And in the scriptures, it talks about a little bit about him being flogged. But the truth of the matter is, is that flogging for the Romans was no small deal. They would take their whips, which were pieces of of leather, strips of leather that had pieces of bone and rock embedded in it. They would tie his hands to a, a short post so his back was fully exposed. And they would literally shred his back so that every nerve was screaming. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that he would be mocked. Jesus knew that he would be spit upon. Jesus knew that he would be hit. Jesus knew that he would be flogged. And he knew how he would die. Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He knew he was going to die by crucifixion. A crucifixion was a horrible way to die. Horrible. In fact, the English word that we have, excruciating, comes from the word crucify. It was excruciating pain. They took Jesus and they laid him on this bare, unfinished wood with his back already screaming from the flogging. They stretched out his arms and drove nails through his hands and through his feet. And then they hoisted him up on the cross. And the way that people died on the cross most often was through suffocation. How? Well, as they're hanging on the cross, eventually they grow weaker and weaker until gravity pulls their body. Catch a breath, and so they have to push up on that nail in their feet and pull up on the nails in their hands just to get a breath. Jesus knew that he was going to die in Jerusalem, he knew who would be a part of it, he knew what would be done to him, and he knew how he was going to die. He would be crucified. On the cross. Jesus was not surprised by any of this. But there's one point in the story 
where Jesus seems surprised. There's one point where he says something where it appears that he is surprised by what's happening. The scriptures say this. About three in the afternoon, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, God, why have you abandoned me? Now, this is unthinkable. Jesus is God the Son. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, that he is God who became flesh, that he is God who's existed forever, who's existed before even time. And he's existed in close relationship with God the Father. And if there was one person who would never abandon him, who would never forsake him, it would be God the Father. And yet now Jesus feels abandoned. He feels forsaken by the Father. And he doesn't understand it. Why? Why have you forsaken me? So why did Jesus feel this way? Well, friend, the scripture says this. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Now, it wasn't Jesus' iniquities. It wasn't Jesus' sins that separated him from God. He was perfect. He was sinless. Even though he was tempted as we are, he was completely without sin. And yet the sin was what separated him from God the Father. Your sin. Your sins in the past, your sins in the present, and your sins in the future were laid upon him. My sin, all my sins in the past, my sins in the present, and my sins in the future were laid upon him. And I can't even grasp this, but the sins of the whole world, I can't wrap my mind around this, the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, were laid upon Jesus on the cross. Because sin separates us from God the Father. Jesus could not see that the Father was there. Friends, I was trying to think of a, an image that would illustrate this. The best that I could come up with was uh, images that I've seen on movies and then pictures of back in the days when the Nazis were ruling in Germany. Here's a picture and um, it's not, you know, real uh, clear, but let me show you what's happening. The Nazis are in Poland at this point, and they are separating this little girl right here with the white hair, blonde hair, from her mother. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to be that mother? In that moment, being separated from the little girl that you love so dearly. And imagine what it must have felt like for the little girl, the fear, the anguish of being pulled away 
from her mother who loved her so dearly. Friend, whenever we sin, sin is like that. Sin separates us. Sin pulls us apart. Sin separates us from God. Our iniquities separate us from God the Father, from the one who loves us more than anyone who has ever loved us before. So tonight, my friends, I want to call us to a time where we honor what Jesus did upon the cross. Because he took all of those sins upon himself, the sins of the whole world upon himself, so that he could take the punishment that we deserve. He took the sins of the whole world upon himself so that we could find life in all of its fullness on this side of death and life in all of its fullness on the other side of death in heaven. He took the whole world's sins upon himself so that if we just ask, we could be forgiven by Almighty God. So tonight, I want to encourage you to do three things. The first is I encourage you to confess. Now, when I say confess your sins, what I mean is, is that you're just flat out honest with God. That there's no excuses made, right? That you're not going to make any excuses about, well, you know, because of my past and because this happened to me or this didn't happen to me and, or because of other people and the peer pressure that I'm in or because of the culture I live in or because of where I work. You're not going to put any excuses to it whatsoever. You're going to own it. And simply confess your sin to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins. And he who is faithful and just will do just that. And secondly, repent. Repent. Draw a line in the sand. Say, I've come this far with this sin, but I'm not going any farther I'm not going to step over this line any further. I'm not going to be like the people in the Bible that says that they are like a dog that returns to its vomit or a pig that wallows in its own mud. I am going to stop right here and not go any further. And those who repent know one thing, and one thing is very important. They know they can't do it alone. They can't do it by their own willpower, their own good character. They need the power of the Holy Spirit working in them and through them to give them the direction and the guidance they need not to step over that line in the sand. Tonight, I challenge you to confess and repent and follow. One of the things that I love about the gospel is that it doesn't just tell you, stop sinning. It tells you, start living. Start living life in all of its fullness. And so it tells us that if we follow the Lord of life, the one who, as it says here, and we will celebrate on Sunday, raised, was raised from the dead, we will find life in all of its fullness right here and now. So follow him. One last scripture. Simon Peter, who denied the Lord three times, he wrote later with 20-20 hindsight, 
why that horrific, heart-wrenching Friday was good. He says, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Tonight, let us come. On this night that we remember what Jesus did for us, let us come and confess our sins. Repent so that we can live for righteousness and follow the shepherd and overseer of our souls, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I cannot completely wrap my mind around the fact that you knew that you were going to the cross. I cannot wrap my mind around the fact of that kind of courage that you displayed. I cannot wrap my mind around the fact of the love that you have for me, that you would die and suffer all that you suffered just so that I could be forgiven. Lord, I pray tonight that you would move in us. Holy Spirit, please move in us. Lead us back to you. Lead us back to you. That we might follow you and live the way that you've called us to live. So that we could experience life overflowing. Lord Jesus, we love you. And may you be glorified in us. Today and every day forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.